been working our way through the book of Acts, uh, which is a history of the early church following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, and what we see is that, uh, that Jesus is on the move. Even after Jesus has left the earthly scene, he continues to work in and through his people. Uh, the, the news, the good news of his work spreading throughout the, the Roman world. And last week, uh, we saw Paul return to the city of Ephesus. Uh, and today, we're going to see what his time there looked like. So we will be in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 8 through verse 20. Let's give our attention to God's word. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in his sight. So some strange things happen in Ephesus. Uh, this is probably one of the stranger episodes uh, in the Bible, certainly in the book of Ephesus. Uh, and what exactly do we make of these things? What, what's going on here? What are we meant to take away from these episodes and I think Luke tells us, in fact, he tells us twice. If you look in verse 10 and in verse 20, he mentions that the word of God is increasing, is having an impact, it's growing, it's prevailing or overpowering. In fact, Luke uses the same word uh, to describe the word of God when he says that it prevailed mightily. Well, that same word is used of the, what the evil spirit does to those 
uh, would-be exorcists, right? It dominates them. In the same way, what we see happening is the word of God is growing in power and conquering its enemies. That's what's, that's what's going on here in Ephesus, and that's kind of the main idea. Uh, when, we, uh, when we moved to Clanton, the second house that we lived in, uh, someone had planted wisteria in the backyard. Now, wisteria is a very pretty plant, especially in the spring. It has these light purplish or pink blooms on it. But the thing about wisteria is that if you don't prune it, if you don't keep an eye on it, if you don't control it, it pretty much just takes everything over. Right, And so the, the previous owners of the home had built this trellis for their wisteria, and the, the trunk had wrapped around the supports, and the, the vines, the branches had kind of woven their way through the metal latticework. But then, I guess they moved or left, and uh, they left the wisteria to its own devices. So what happened then is that uh, both on the ground, right, the vines shot across the ground and went to other places, but also through the air and snaked into a tree that was nearby and began pulling that tree down uh, and were making their way towards the house, right? Um, without check, wisteria was, was spreading and growing and prevailing. Now, the gospel, God's word, is not an invasive plant, uh, but that gives you a, a, an image of what's happening here in Ephesus, that as uh, as the word goes forth, it grows and it increases. And, and what's happening is God's power is rescuing people from other powers that enslave them. That's what we see happening here. And so this morning, I just want to trace the narrative through, right? What, what we see first is ordinary words, and then we see some extraordinary deeds. And what that leads to is life-changing results. So let's begin with the ordinary words. Now, I, I use the word ordinary uh, not because the word of God is ordinary or it doesn't accomplish miraculous things, but simply to set it off from the miracles that will come later. Uh, we have a tendency to be enamored with the miraculous, right? We love the show. And so we, we have a tendency to go straight there without first seeing that Paul is laboring in the Word for at least two years. Uh, and it's in, the, it's in the context of that ordinary Word ministry that the miraculous deed ministry takes place. So let's talk about those ordinary words. What, are the, what is Paul doing? And what we see Paul doing is the same thing we've seen him doing. If you've been with us throughout this series, Paul's not doing anything different than he's done anywhere else. He, in verse 8, he goes first to the synagogue, the, the Jewish gathering place, uh, and he talks about Jesus, right? He, he reasons, he persuades, he speaks boldly, and he does that for about three months. And then when that door closes, he moves next door and does the same thing again, this time uh, with more Gentiles. And so Paul is pursuing the same ministry that he's pursued in other cities. Now, there is a slight difference here. Uh, there's a difference in the way Luke describes Paul's ministry in verse 8. He says that he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's uh, one of the first times that Luke uses that phrase to talk about Paul's ministry. Now, up to this point, 
Uh, if you look at some of other, the other places Paul has been, for instance, in Corinth, uh, just before this, Paul's message there was that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And so we ought to ask, like, well, okay, what's going on? Has Paul changed his message? Is he preaching a different message in Ephesus than he was preaching in Corinth or in Athens or anywhere else that he's been? And the answer to that question is no. When Paul says that Jesus is the Christ, I just want to remind you that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means Messiah. And the Messiah is the one that the Jews were waiting on to bring God's kingdom, God's rule over everything. Right? So Messiah and kingdom are connected for Paul and for, and for the Jews. Okay? So when Paul comes to Ephesus and is talking about the kingdom, he's still talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is the king who brings the kingdom. And that's important because of what we're going to see happen as the story unfolds in Ephesus. Paul is talking about King Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Now, what can we learn? Uh, if, you're a, if you're a Christian this morning, what, what can we learn from Paul's ordinary word ministry? First, we can learn that we need to be reasonable. The, the word that Luke uses to describe Paul's ministry when he says he was reasoning with them is where we get our word dialogue from. That there was a back and forth. Paul's not giving a, a canned presentation. He's asking questions and he's listening and, and his audience is asking questions. There's a back and forth. There's a, a dialogue. He's reasoning with people. He's also being persuasive. He's seeking to persuade people, right? He doesn't simply just say, well, that's, that's what I believe. Take it or leave it. This is my personal belief. Take it or leave it. Paul doesn't do that. He wants people to come to know Christ, so he engages people. He wants to persuade them. He brings evidence for his claims. He supplies reasons. He makes arguments. He is persuasive. We can also... Uh, learn to be versatile. Uh, if you look at what Paul is doing here, right, in contrast, we usually typically um, limit ministry to one venue, church, right? Church is where ministry happens, or maybe in places like Christian concerts or something like that. Right? We, we tend to limit ministry to the sacred spaces. But notice how versatile, how flexible Paul is, right? Yes, he begins in the synagogue, and that would be analogous to a church gathering. So there is preaching in the synagogue, and that would have been particularly effective for religious people, uh, for people who knew the Bible like Paul did. And in fact, we need to know that, that Paul, that there's a need, right, for religious people to hear the gospel, right? Because just, just because you've been going to church your whole life doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus, you may believe some things about him, but you may not actually be trusting in Jesus yourself. And so there's a need for gospel ministry to religious people like us. But notice also that Paul goes other places. In, in Corinth, uh, when he was booted out of the synagogue or chose to leave the synagogue, he went to someone's home and they met there. 
So here we see that dialogue ministry in a, in a friendship, in a home context. Again, questions and answers probably around a meal, probably around the table. And then here in Ephesus, uh, Paul takes his message next door. He rents out a hall, a lecture hall from a man named Tyrannus. And he dialogues with people in the hall when it's not being used Right? He, people come to him and they have conversations. So it's a very versatile ministry. Think maybe something like the university setting. So when we look at Paul's time in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Athens, what we see is that he actually spent more time in public spaces, in secular spaces, than he did in sacred spaces. Right? We have a tendency to focus all of our ministry in the sacred spaces. But that actually was not how Paul did ministry. He was very present in the, the secular spaces. Why? Well, the kingdom of God doesn't just pertain to the church building. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch of the entire universe over which God does not say, mine. Right, so Paul takes this message of the kingdom, of the coming kingdom, into the spaces where it needs to be heard. May we do the same. And then also, notice uh, we can learn from Paul to be engaged. Paul stays in Ephesus something like three years. And most of that time, he is working as a tent maker. He is not a professional preacher he is not a professional speaker right he doesn't fly in and then fly back out he sets up shop he gets to know people he does business with people he gets involved in the economic and civic life of the city christian there are multiple streams of people running all around you god has placed you near them god has placed you in them where you live where you work where you play Ask God to show you where to wade into those streams so that you can bring the good news of his kingdom. Those are the things we can learn from Paul's ordinary word ministry. Now the next thing we see, though, are some extraordinary deeds, extraordinary miracles. In verse 11, Luke tells us God was doing extraordinary miracles. And they are just that. They are extraordinary. If you're coming afresh to this, you may think, well, this probably happened all the time, this whole, this whole miracle bit. But it actually didn't. This is the one time that we know of that this happened in Paul's life. This is the one place where God, and, it, and notice too, it says God was doing the miracles, right? God was doing these abnormal, extraordinary miracles in Ephesus, for Paul. They didn't happen in any other place, right? And I want you to notice, too, that they weren't attractional, right? Uh, televangelists use miracles or pseudo-miracles in our day to, to get people in the door. It's an attraction-based ministry. We want to get you in the door so you'll come and listen. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that these miracles come after the word, that the miracles actually prove the message. 
That's what they're for. And friend, that's what miracles are always for in the Bible. The miracles actually validate the message. They show that Paul is God's messenger. In the same way that they they worked the same way for Jesus. That when Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, he did miracles in keeping with the kingdom. Miracles that set people free from Satan's kingdom, from evil spirits, from disease, from death. God chooses to do these things for Paul here. So God uses works of power to validate his word of power. And in a city filled with the magic, uh, in a city filled with magic and the occult, God uses these miracles to show his superiority. And that's, this is actually proved when these Jewish exorcists, these sons of Sceva, uh, when their exorcism backfires. Right? They, they try to use Jesus like a magic word. Uh, and it has disastrous results for them, humorous uh, for us. It is, it is a funny scene. Right? These guys uh, try to go in and they try to use Jesus' name to cast out a demon But instead, they're the ones who get cast out. They're the ones who get exercised from the house. They get dominated, beat up, stripped naked, and run off. Absolutely humiliating. Absolutely humiliating. Couldn't be more. And this shows us that Jesus' power is not in saying his name. He's He's not a magic spell. He's not a chant. He's not an incantation. That the, that the power of Jesus actually comes in understanding what he came to do. The power of Jesus is in his person and work. He's not, a, he's not a magic spell. And what this scene tells us and what this, this whole section tells us is that when it comes to the miraculous, we need to avoid two extremes. Uh, on the one hand, and this is probably where most of us are in modern day United States... We need to avoid hyper-rationalism that says there's no such thing as the supernatural, right? Now, now Christianity, the gospel, is a rational message. It appeals to the intellect. So we're not, we're not saying don't be rational. But the hyper-rationality that says, oh, there's no such thing as the supernatural. It's not real, right? Uh, even if we wouldn't just outright say that, maybe a lot of us live there. Uh, it's something we believe but maybe not actually Say so we're we're kind of nervous, especially you know since we're a Presbyterian church, we get nervous when we talk about miracles and the Holy Spirit, right? It kind of makes us shake a little bit. Um, we need a rational reason. Um, let's not be afraid of the supernatural. Let's not be afraid of the miraculous. But also on the other side, uh, we can have a tendency uh, to to crave the displays of power, to crave the miraculous for its own sake. We can look for for miracles, and we need to remember that God doesn't always use those. In fact, more often than not, uh, God doesn't use those, at least if the Bible is any indication. And so we want to avoid those two extremes. So what happens when God's kingdom comes in word and in power? Well, you have life-changing results. 
Now look at verse 17. As the, the news about the exorcism gone wrong spreads, people begin to fear. Not in abject terror, but the kind of awe that leads to praise. People hear about what's happened and they go, hmm, there must be something to this God. There must be something to this Jesus. And people begin to come to know Jesus. They come to believe in Jesus. And then look at what happens in verse 18. It says, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. As people come to Jesus, it changes them. They come forward and they confess things in their lives that don't square with following Jesus. And we actually do this every Sunday. Zach led us in, this, uh, in that part of the worship service earlier, right? We, we come before the Lord and we come clean, right? We confess our practices. Why? Because coming to Jesus doesn't just shut off the sin switch. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean you're blind to your sin or ignorant of your sin. In fact, it means quite the opposite. That when you come to Jesus, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he opens your eyes to all the ways that your life doesn't line up with Jesus's. He opens our eyes, and we call that conviction. And then what happens is when we're convicted of sin, it should drive us to Jesus, not away from Jesus, not to some kind of self-salvation strategy, but to Jesus. Right, that conviction, the Holy Spirit drives us to throw ourselves on Jesus, to admit that we're constantly in need of his saving and renewing grace. And not only do they come confessing their practices, but they also come with changed lives. They, they, they actually leave their former ways of life. In verse 19, again, Ephesus was a major center for magic and the occult. An idol worship. And what we see happen is remarkable. These people don't just kind of line Jesus up next to their other practices, right? They don't, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not like having multiple credit cards in your wallet. You know, like, okay, if the magic card doesn't work, I've got the Jesus card. They don't do that. And that would have been very common in the first century to kind of line gods up, right? You want as many as possible on your bookshelf so you, needed, you could get all the help you needed. No, they realize that since Jesus is the true king, then it's time to reject all these others. And they demonstrate that by taking their, their magic books, by taking their scrolls and their charms and burning them. And Luke tells us it was something to the tune, in, in, in our dollars, it would have been something to the tune of $5 million, probably over that. $5 million worth of stuff that they just burned, right? They could have sold it. But that would have led people down the wrong path. And so they choose to destroy it instead in a major way to say, Jesus is king. Jesus is the better power. See, when we talk about magic, we're not talking about Harry Potter books. Okay? We're not talking about fictional stories. Magic in the Bible is using the natural to try to get a supernatural response. It's using the natural to get a supernatural response. In that way, it's, it's much like what the sons of Sceva were trying to do with the name of Jesus. 
right? Trying to manipulate the situation so that they could get a, get a response, right? It's, it's actually another self-salvation strategy. It's another way that we put ourselves at the center and we try to manipulate the gods or the supernatural so that we can get our, our desired outcome, which is exactly what many of us do. We treat Jesus like a magic spell. We have our desired outcome. We know what we want. We know the power we want to see. So then we just kind of throw Jesus' name on there uh, and hope it works. And the beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't work for us. We are not in charge of him. He is not our puppet or our tool or our magic spell. He is so much better. Because he is the king. And his kingdom has come. And because his kingdom has come, it means that you can be set free from everything else that enslaves you, including you. It means that you no longer have to work for any other lesser god or lesser king. Jesus is king, and he's a good one. And so I invite you to come to Jesus this morning. If you've, if you've never seen your life changed by the power of God, look, the most miraculous thing that happens in this passage is not that somebody got a sweat rag from Paul and it cast out a demon. That's not the miracle. I mean, it is miraculous. Don't get me wrong. Sorry, that is a miracle. But the most miraculous thing is that hardened sinners turn to God is that hard hearts are turned to flesh. People who did not love God begin to love God. That's not a work of man. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. If you have never seen that happen in your life, if you have, if you have never felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit making you aware of your sin, pointing out to you all of the lesser kings that you serve, I invite you this morning, come to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we sang earlier, we just pray that you would come and that you would take your place. Lord, that you would demonstrate in our lives the power of your gospel to rescue, to save, to open blind eyes, to convict hard hearts. Lord, draw us to yourself and make us more like unto Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand. Uh, we're going to give thanks to God. If you're giving this morning, uh, you can give in person through the plates that are in the back. You may give online via our website. You can also uh, text to give. That information should be on the screen behind me. Uh, let's give thanks to God by singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Receive God's blessing from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us.
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.